Hey, and welcome to the Happy Ramp Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Cluck, joined by my good friend Barnabas Piper and uh, and no Ronnie Martin today. Uh, today being Holy Week, uh, all of my pastor friends have uh, completely tapped out on uh, other other responsibilities in their lives. And uh, I don't ask questions, Barnabas. I just I kind of give them the space that I feel like they need. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, having grown up in a pastor's house, I have a, a slightly different view. I I understand every pastor thinks this is a busier week. Um, uh-huh. Color me skeptical. I think it's just <laughs> I think it's a convenient week for them to to not answer emails and texts is what this is. And then they go uh, preach the is. exact same sermon on Sunday. And in fact, they probably are going to preach the same sermon they did last week or last year at this time, I mean. Oh, there it is, man. Challenging words from uh from Barnabas Piper. I kid. Now, I kid. I know. I well, know. I gotta say that because somebody's gonna get offended. We we do that on occasion. We offend. People. Well, dude, somebody always gets offended, That's man. True. I mean, you can you can set your watch by that. And speaking of, I feel like uh, I don't know, man. Let me let me suss this out to you. Maybe you've noticed this, but I, I feel like Ronnie Martin brought a different kind of fan base to the Happy Rant, and like I feel like there are people who listen to our program just because they have a weird sort of uh, infatuation with Ronnie. So I feel like that, that group is going to be disappointed just kind of right off the bat because he's not here. Am I right? That's true. But if they've gotten this far, it means they already downloaded the podcast, which means we really got what we wanted from them anyway. So problem yeah, solved. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so yeah, sorry, folks, this is, but this is all just big business, man. It's yeah, all just absolutely. numbers and, and transactions. And speaking of, we have, uh, we have sponsors to throw love to. Uh, I will throw my initial bit of love to uh, the boys at Resonate Recordings, uh, who, as always, do uh, a smashing job of making us sound good. Their their job will be easier without Ronnie's jankety internet connection today, so uh, they won't have to deal with that. So e- even even the guys at Resonate, I feel like, are going to have a little bit easier Holy Week um, than than they would normally have. So uh, you're welcome, fellas. And Barnabas, tell us about our other sponsor. Yep, we have Nav Press again. They uh, they being a consistent sponsor of ours, coming back with the book "Cry of the Soul: How Our Emotions Reveal Our Deepest Questions About God." Uh, they were the, this was the same sponsor as we had last episode. So the authors are Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. He of the awesome name, Tremper. Uh, Tremper. Yep, Longman. That yeah. I don't, what did we decide he was? Was he a dude? He was, he was like a. A, a drummer boy in the Civil War. Okay, was what I decided. Okay, I couldn't. You know? I, I I remember we touched on possibly uh, like Australian rugby player, possibly like Yale crew rower, possibly. Dude, another, yes, Yale crew rower with the like the sweater tied yes. around the neck was another. Eighties. Uh, I, I feel like like the the uh, the bad guy in an eighties teen movie, possibly. Um, oh, dude, totally. Yeah, yeah. With again with the the sweater tied around yeah. the neck, like yeah. James Spader would have played him in the eighties. Yes. Uh, yeah. He exactly in. Reality. Like, this is my current boyfriend, Trimper Longman, who's a <laughs> jerk. Yes. If In reality, I, he is an Old Testament I'll prophet, be. Westminster Seminary. Uh, yeah, which, he's none which of those I, things that we mentioned, is he? What's that? He's none of those things that we mentioned. Well, he might have been back in the day. I mean, a lot, a lot can change between being 17 and being a, uh, an OT Dude, prof. He may have been. You know what? Let's have a look at him, man. While you're, while you're uh, kind of whizzing through the, the promo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this guy you up. You're going to Wikipedia this thing as as per listener suggestion dude as per listener suggestion we're doing some research here right. on the air we're going to research on the air so tremper longman old testament prophet westminster seminary um and then dan allender who i mentioned previously he is a counselor specializing in trauma and abuse victims but but really just kind of covering the spectrum so between the two of them they weave together this uh a look at people's negative emotions and what they tell us about 
what our heart needs from God and what our heart thinks of God. And so they, they use the Psalms as sort of a model for that. So this is a great book for people who are doing counseling, for people who are going through a hard time, um, looking at emotions not as a problem to be solved, but as sort of an indicator of how we relate to and and, uh, and believe about God. So kind of a paradigm shift for how Americans especially think about emotions. So again, the name of the book is Cry of the Soul, How Our Emotions Reveal Our Deepest Questions About God. It's from Nav Press. We really appreciate their sponsorship. It is a fantastic book. You should go check it out. Um, it'll be in the show notes. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com, wherever you buy your books. Since I work at Lifeway, I'm going to suggest that you go to lifeway.com and purchase it. But if you're an Amazon shopper, you'll probably get it there because it's faster. So get Cry of the Soul uh, and support Nav Press because they support us. There it is. So uh, I looked up Trimper Longman and I was ready to, to, to make more kind of witty observations with my words, except that he just looks like a really nice guy is all I can say. Mm, he just looks yeah. like a really decent you know, just kind of standard pastoral sort of guy. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't look all James Spadery from the '80s. He doesn't look like a like a rugby player from Australia or uh, a drummer boy in the Civil War. So, uh, so I got nothing. His, do you think his parents gave him that name, like, at, with aspirations of him being those things, and he instead he just turned into a really really nice Old Testament prof who writes <laughs> good pastoral things? Dude, you know, that's a that's a great question. I have no doubt that they had expectations because we all do for our kids and and yeah, name-wise too. I'm I'm thinking they had to have some big expectations. But you know what? You put almost anything with Longman and it sounds okay. Even yeah, a, even like a even like an 80s name like Brett, you know, Brett Longman. <laughs> you would have been like a defenseman for the, you know, Detroit Red Wings with that yes, name. Yes, I was thinking hockey players. Of course, I suppose with the name like Brett, you have to be uh because of Brett Hall, but Dude, even even a name, even like a real old timey name like Stan, Stan Longman, that sounds kind of awesome. You know what yeah, I mean? Stan Longman sounds like sounds like he would have been like one of Louis Zamperini's childhood friends from Unbroken or something like that. You know, the sort Dude, of that, seriously, the, one of don't the mess with generation. Stan Longman. He no. rolls his cigarettes up in his in his shirt sleeves. You know, <laughs> like that kind of guy. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, I love it. You put almost anything with Barnabas Longman. I, I like it. Kind of a mouthful, but. Yeah, that one. I don't know what that one is. Barnabas uh, doesn't have a paradigm. I, I I guess I'm supposed to set the paradigm or something. I don't know. Dude, how about this one? Ronnie Longman. Ronnie Longman. Ronnie Longman would be in the movie The Sandlot. Oh, dude, you're right, man. You're Again, right. sort of sort of that era, but like it's yeah. and then and then he would grow up to be Ronald Longman, who would be probably a CFO somewhere. Yeah, a CFO or a, a CPA. You do your taxes, exactly. you know, but it. As a kid, it'd be like, Mom, can I go play at Ronnie Longman's house again? Exactly. And, and she'd roll her eyes and like wipe her hands on her apron and be like, ah, oh, you know, again, Ronnie Longman? Yeah, that kid. Can't we have any peace in this house? You know, Be back by dinner. Be back by dinner. Exactly. Well, speaking of the Sandlot, sort of, um, the Sandlot has to do with sports. And uh, we got a suggestion for um, a topic here on the most unlikable sports teams and why we hate them. Um, now I have to I have to come clean here in that there there aren't a lot of sports teams that I hate, uh, but I recognize that there are teams that other people hate, and uh, and I and I feel like I could suss out why. Could, but I'll I'll open it up uh, with you, Barnabas. Are there teams that you hate? Well, and let me so, l- let me ask you this: Did, was yeah. at any I realize that you are a 
you're a sports fan of the meta variety now, meaning you love yeah. you love the yeah. the games themselves as opposed to re- having a diehard rooting interest. Yeah, for sure. Was there ever a time when you hated specific teams? <sighs> That's tough, man. I, I don't feel like there was because even growing up, you know, growing up in the Midwest, growing up in Indiana, I was a Chicago Bears fan, a huge Chicago Bears fan. But even even back then, I don't feel like I hated the Packers like a lot of people did. Like I, I had enough sort of respect for NFL history to kind of have a, a, a grudging respect and even like for the Packers at times. The, the only time I ever hated the Packers, maybe you remember this, you might be too young. Um, we had a quarterback for the Bears uh, named Jim McMahon, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was 1986. So it was the year after the Super Bowl year. Uh, the Packers had a defensive end named Charles Martin who, like, hit Jim McMahon and just body slammed him on his shoulder, like, you know, five minutes after the play was over. So uh, a, a crazy amount of time elapsed. And then he just grabbed McMahon and just, uh, like, like pull-axed him into the, into the hard turf there at Soldier Field. And I, I think I truly hated Charles Martin after that happened uh, because he hurt my, uh, my quarterback. But, but, no, even as a kid, man, I don't remember having, like, intense hatred for for teams i'm sure i hated some individual players um i'll give this some thought as you uh as you give your answer but uh but yeah i'm struggling with this one a little all right bit. well i i could probably take the rest of the podcast on this one because i have sort of eras of hatred or or flavors yeah. of hatred because growing up in minnesota i grew up four or five blocks from the metrodome where both the vikings and the twins played right. um both have had some modicum of success as well as providing numerous seasons of heartbreak. But so growing up, my, the teams that I hated were their rivals. So, um, the Packers, especially during the Brett Favre era, Brett Favre is, uh, a football player who I respect to the utmost and abhor completely. Mm. And now uh, talk about the hatred vis-a-vis Brett Favre. I I want you to, you know, kind of unpack that. Is it anything about going, I feel like I'm going to Dan Allender for counseling right now. Yeah, I know, man. Yeah, just dig deep. Keep keep digging. Talk about that. Um, well, uh, he. It's very hard to hate a player who is mediocre, unless sure. they're a dirty player. Brad Favre was not mediocre. He was phenomenal. So, uh, he beat the Vikings with regularity, especially at Lambeau. Yeah. Uh, but he just was that like exuberant, obnoxious. Oh, yeah. Like mm-hmm. get it. I, mean, I remember when he tried to pick a fight with John Randall. Now John Randall was this war painted two hundred. That just doesn't seem very wise to me. You know, I John think, Randall seemed truly scary. Right. He was he was a terrifying human being um, yeah. on the football field. I think he's pretty nice off football field, but um, but that was far. Like he was just this insane competitor, which means that as a as a if somebody was a Packers fan, I'm sure that they loved him to death because he's the kind Absolutely. of guy who, if he's on your team, you love him. If he's not on your team, you hate him. With that said, when he came to the Vikings in 2011, I think it was, I still hated him because really? I, I knew without a shadow of a doubt from the moment they signed him, they were going to be very good that year. And then he was going to ruin the season for them. And the mm. season ended with a pick on an ill-advised classic Brett Favre throwback across the field dumb <laughs> yeah. play against the New Orleans Saints and I wasn't even sure I wasn't even shocked I was like well yeah. who didn't see that coming all he needed Dude, to honestly, do was all he needed to do was run out of bounds and they had a field goal and instead he threw a pick can I just say about that game against the Saints though and I, I didn't have a dog in that fight meaning that I, I I didn't have a huge rooting interest one way or the other but Dude, the beating that Favre absorbed in that game 
was one of the most savage things I've ever seen oh. in pro football. And that, that ended up being – that was one of the bounty games, right? Yes, that was, that was one of the games. Uh, Favre and Percy Harvin. So two – that was, I think, Harvin's rookie year. Uh, he yep. was a really explosive player. Um, oh yeah, that there was. Those were two of the players that there was evidence that that Greg Williams and the Saints defense targeted them, and and they had bounties on them. So a thousand dollars if you knock them out of the game or whatever it was. So, um, but yes, he he took a a royal beat down in that game. So yeah, and just kept pulling himself up yes. off the carpet, well, man, and coming back for more, which is which, really impressive. I thought, which is one of the th- reasons that Favre is both lovable if you loved the Packers and hateable Indeed. if you didn't, because he just. He was such a gritty gamer, and gritty gamers are annoying as all get out if you root against them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And exuberant people are annoying if you root against them. Yes. See also Cam Newton, who, yeah, I can't say that I hate the Panthers, but I, I think I went through periods of like, hate, hate is a strong word, but like probably actual hatred for Cam Newton's ethos, just his his way of carrying himself. Right. You know, when we talked about Uh-oh. that one on another podcast, because I. Yeah, I I kind of liked it, but again, I have enough distance from the Panthers that I have completely neutral feelings, and I just thought it was kind of fun. And he's right, he's right. a great quarterback, which is probably how a lot of people felt towards Favre. They're like, oh, that's Brett being Brett, and uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. But I I couldn't stand him. And then after I moved to Chicago uh, in for college, and a few years after, then I stopped hating the Packers and started hating the Bears because nothing okay. is worse than rooting against a team and living in their backyard. And yes. Bears fans are a special breed of obnoxious too. So, no dude, talk about to that now because I I am a Bears fan and my family's from Chicago. So to me, like the fan base always just seemed, it just seemed normal. You know, like Chicago sports radio and and I should you know I guess just the the vibe of the Bears fans seemed normal I to be. Say Chicago fans in general. It's not just okay. the Bears. It's also sure. it's also the Bulls. It's also but especially the Cubs and the White Sox. Um, just, now, if you would, for me, describe like the Chicago fan. Uh, the Chicago fan is not a sports fan. Okay. They, don't, they don't know anything <laughs> about the sport itself or any yeah. other team in the league. Okay. They only know their team. And so if you bring okay. up football, all they can say is, duh, Bears. You know, like uh-huh. that's – Bill Swirsky's super fans are – I think those are actual Bears fans. I don't think Which is one of the great game. sketches of all time. Oh, I mean, hilarious. truly. Just, yeah, yeah, legendary. It's one of those classic, it's funny because it's true skits. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, kind of like the parodies of Donald Trump. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, they, they're not – You'll find you won't find many Cubs fans who actually love baseball, dude. Yeah, so I feel like there's different genres of of Chicago fans. I mean, you got your Bill Swirsky, you know, super fan type, and and I have these guys in my family, uh, you know, distant relatives who are like, anytime the anytime the Bears lost, like, oh, they should fire Dicka, they should cut, you know, everybody. And I mean, these guys are just passionate with like no direction. You know what right. I mean? So so yeah, what what you said about knowledge, I think, rings true there. And- and all Bears fans are still living in 1985, even if they were born in 1992. Oh, dude, including myself, man. I, I'm guilty as charged on that one. I mean, that was such a magical – I've got all the games on yeah. DVD. On the plus you side, know. you remember 1985. Oh, yeah. I, dude, I was in fourth grade, which was just the, the really the sweet spot for caring about sports. And you're not all jaded. You don't know, like, all the dark sides mm-hmm. of everything. So it was amazing. I, I think the other Chicago sports fan, though, is sort of the – you know, you're, you're, you're kind of affluent north side yuppie who just, you know, goes to a couple Cubs games a year, you know, buys the jersey, also doesn't know anything about the team. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's kind of into it because it's the thing that you're supposed to be into in Chicago. You know what I mean? Well, the 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 reputation of Cubs fans, especially because they were terrible for so long. Granted, they, they that ship seems to have turned, and they seem to be a pretty good baseball team now. Um, but sure. the people used to go to Cubs games to be seen, not to see the game. I mean, it was so it was. Oh, absolutely. You had your bleacher bums who were out there to get sun and drink old style, and then you yep. had everybody. The closer <laughs> you got to home plate, the richer they got, the smaller the tank tops got, and the prettier they got. And they were there just to to kind of that because that was yeah. the North Side scene. And it was a White, social event. White Sox fans are just embittered, angry, uh, inferiority complex because nobody cares about the White Sox in Chicago except for like – there's like 100,000 fans total. Yeah, like tough, jaded Southsiders, man. You know. They like to think of themselves that way anyway. There, there are some of them and then there's a bunch who just – they're the younger brother of a Cubs fan and so they just picked the White Sox because they couldn't see <laughs> what the older brother was rooting for. That's um, right. And I – yeah, so the White Sox were another team that I – cannot stand and couldn't stand and uh but then there's another category of teams and that's just like the unlikable team in general so okay. like the new york yankees and the and the los angeles lakers sure just also duke right i i'm, I'm pretty sure this got suggested because we're in march madness and somebody hates you know yeah, the I duke mean, ethos although here's the thing i i don't yeah. feel this way about all the hateable teams because i actually like the patriots and i kind of like duke yeah dude i, I like the pay i I actually love the Patriots, man. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by Belichick. I think they're an amazing team. The way they they reload, retool, you know, they just they just find a way, which is amazing to me. But they're um, definitely you, one of the bad guys of the NFL. Like they, oh for sure, they yeah. Everybody the limits likes to of get the rules. They, 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 right. Everybody hates good teams, or especially right. consistently good teams. So they're definitely one of the most hateable teams. I just don't hate them in particular. Yeah, people like to get all indignant about the cheating, and you know. All of that stuff, which I just roll my eyes at. Dude, the Duke thing, I can kind of – I could kind of get there. If I cared more about college basketball, I would probably hate Duke. I mean just the yeah, – I don't know. The the kind of old money. Um, well, yeah, just – Coach K. In the, in the 90s. Yeah. Coach K ahead. is one of the smuggest, smarmiest yeah. people in the world. I mean just right. – I, if I can, if I had a like you said, if I had a rooting interest in college basketball, I'm certain that I couldn't, that I would abhor him completely. But yeah. as oh, it yeah. is, I watch college basketball from a distance, and so guys like Coach K and Coach Calipari at Kentucky, who's another highly hateable person, I yeah. just sort of look at it and I'm like, they're really good coaches, and that's kind of the they extent are. of my feelings towards them. Dude, you know who I kind of hate in college sports, and this is going to make me some enemies back in my my former. The former place where I lived. Uh, I, I really kind of hate Michigan State, to be honest. Oh, I was hoping you would say Jim Harbaugh. No, dude, I, I kind of dig Harbaugh, man. Going back to like, I, I had a job in high school. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was a ball boy for the Colts when Harbaugh was there. I think you mentioned that at one time. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and he was super cool. I mean, he was just an exceedingly cool, charismatic, competitive guy. And uh, I used to catch passes from him. I used to warm him up before practice, which was a blast. But um, so, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of into the whole Harbaugh, Michigan thing. And I guess I've always, you know, in the in the Michigan, Michigan state rivalry, I've always gravitated toward Michigan just because of the the, I, the helmets, the history. Yeah. You know, all the above. But uh, but yeah, Michigan state fans tend to be really obnoxious, probably in the same way that, that you describe White Sox fans. I mean, just a, a chip on the shoulder, a sense of inferiority that's probably well founded. Um and yet they're not dealing with it very well. You know what I mean? They they consistently <laughs> deal with it in a really in a really negative way. Even like though they've been is. good for what like five or six Dude, years now. 
they've been really legitimately good in basketball for a long time, and they've been they've been quite good in football for yeah five or five or six years now. But uh, although after last but, yeah, they don't seem in basketball, to know. their fans should be upset. That was a that was a rough <laughs> a rough way Dude, to end the right. season. Middle Tennessee State, right? Yeah, go Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That's right, man. Go whatever they are. What are they? Middle Tennessee uh, State. It's probably something to do with an animal with claws. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Or maybe but, a dog. Uh, but yeah, Michigan State. If pressed, I would uh, I, I would say that's a team that I dislike. Uh, yeah. But you were saying about the Lakers and about the Yankees. Yeah, just I I think. Okay, here's the thing <laughs> that drives me nuts about those teams is not. It's not just their success. Although for a long time the Yankees played by different rules than everybody else because because they could just outspend everyone. That has leveled yeah. off a little bit. Not so much an issue anymore. It's the fact that they what those fans do is they look at every other team in the league and they start talking about the other team's players as if mm-hmm. they are theirs. So right. when that guy is on our team, just with right. the attitude of oh yeah, as, why as though the whole they? league is just like right. Yeah, we're just going to shop for the best players on everyone else. Everybody's a farm team for the Yankees. That's it. So I remember yeah. when, when Joe Maurer for the Twins was, a, uh, was an MVP caliber player a few years ago. Yankees reporters were talking about when his contract was up and they, oh, yeah. what, what would it look like if they signed him. And I'm like, he, he's a twin for three more years. And there's <laughs> no guarantee he's going to sign with you. Maybe he hates the Yankees as much as everybody else does because he grew up in Minnesota. And uh, so it's it was that attitude, just that attitude of complete smug superiority. Like they genuinely think that they're qualitatively better as people, as an organization, <laughs> as a city. Like there's just yeah. no question in their mind that everybody else should should bow at their feet. Yeah, that, exactly. That is a very hateable, uh, very hateable attitude. Dude, you know what? I thought of another one while you were talking, and this has more to do with just aesthetics, both of the game and of the uniform. Uh, I really hate Oregon football. Um, you you I, hate, I hate the way they play football? I, I hate, yes, it, it, at times. I, I'm not a spread offense guy, so uh, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum on and off the air. But uh, but I hate bubble screens. I don't like the spread. Uh, Oregon is sort of a, a signature spread team. They were early adopters, and they've, and they've run that offense for a long yeah. time. So uh, I think I've disliked watching their games for a long time because of that. And they're always on at night. Uh, they're often on the the kind of big ABC game at night, um, and I I dude I hate the changing uniforms every game thing, uh, and and I don't so much even hate it for Oregon because they were first to do it. I hate the way that you know Middle Tennessee State and uh, Bowling Green <laughs> and like yes you know all these teams Toledo all these teams that have no business doing that are now doing it Indiana you know it's like really yeah I think uh, I feel like you should you should have you need to like earn the right to do that so win uh, a certain number of conference championships possibly national championships like alabama could do it now the thing is alabama is going to throw up the bird at that because they're like why do we need to do that we're crimson and cream and we just beat everybody every year in our traditional uniforms which by the way looks way better yeah i love that attitude and i love alabama's classic uniform uh there's just some like there's some respect for the game issues tied up in that for me, and I, I realize I'm sounding like an old person. but uh, it, What it is is – so the two teams that started it were Oregon and Maryland because oh, Oregon, is dude, Maryland's, back, Oregon is in Maryland's the backyard just, of Nike. Maryland is in the backyard yeah. of Under Armour. And so they're, exactly. they're like the test case schools for anything that those – 
the, the basically those businesses just donate stuff to them and they're like hey here's a here's a new uniform and yeah. uh and it's just free advertising now maryland is a mediocre at best football program so that's a little weird at least oregon's had some success but yeah dude those maryland's are- maryland's attempts at doing that were like Oh, Do you ever have vomit. a guy at like your high school who who wasn't cool? He was like quantifiably uncool, but he like he bought the shoes that he thought were going to make him cool, and they didn't. Yes, that's how I feel when I see Oregon in the alternate un- or not Oregon, Maryland in the alternate uniforms. Yep, like it, it's just a sad attempt to uh, to raise your program to a certain level that it's never going to be. Yeah, at. When, when you're a seven and six Big Ten team. <laughs> yeah, uh, looking yeah. cool. Just sorry, it's not working, oh, dude. And that color scheme is just vomit esque. It's so bad. You know what? I hate Maryland too. <laughs> Let's end the segment there. Done. So, speak, speaking of fan bases, this is a this is a weird sort of segue, but I think you'll you'll get it once I get there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that seems to be just so prevalent in our culture uh, right now and prevalent in social media is this idea of solidarity. So everybody's standing with everybody in the wake of everything. Um, So something happens in the news and you change uh, your status or your photograph or whatever to reflect your solidarity with whoever the bad thing has just happened to. Um, Dude, my question is what, what is this phenomenon, man? And what is solidarity even like, what are we even doing? Like it, it cost me nothing to say, you know, I stand with France after the Paris bombings and I've lived in France and I've been to Paris and I, I love that city and I love the people that I know there. But I, I feel like it's almost more insulting or more kind of patronizing to yeah. say, you know, from across the ocean where it cost me nothing, I stand with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And I think to put a positive spin on it, my guess is – most people are not – most people are probably trying to do something good That's or something true. they yeah. perceive as good. My guess is most people have also not through uh, how cheap and meaningless what they're doing is. Mm. You know, And I, I even think this is true at like the governmental level when you look around and like, OK, the pyramids in Egypt are colored with – now it's, it's the Belgian flag after the incident in Brussels mm-hmm. or uh, things like that. Now it's, it's one thing if, if, if Paris lights up a monument – on behalf of Brussels, because those are almost like sister cities when it comes to tragedy yeah. now. Yeah. But when um, you know when when they light up the pyramids, or it's it's in London, or it's in Washington D.C., even that, I'm just kind of like, what? That's an Instagram opportunity. That's not. Uh, that doesn't right. mean right. much. Now it, right. it. That's and I think social media is something where people don't know how to feel. People don't know how to deal with tragedy. People don't know how to reflect. People don't know – they don't want to be afraid. There's a right. sense of sort of like we're all together in this, which gives a false sense of confidence as right. opposed to just sort of weeping with those who weep. I mean I, I think it's the opposite of doing that. It's not actually doing that. Now, there will be those who, who do it out of that heart and you can't – I can't yeah. judge the motives of it. But the yeah. – I just know that it's the case because of the sheer numbers. Most people who do things are not doing it from a, any sort of reflective stance, I wouldn't think, because most people aren't terribly reflective. Yeah. Dude, do you feel like and – I, and I feel like we've, we've hit this a ton on, on the show and maybe it's just indicative of where we are as a culture that, that the conversation always kind of circles back around to this. But do you think that social media presence has, has kind of eroded our, our ability to reflect, to like actually reflect – 
and to actually be sad and to actually uh, mourn with people who are mourning. Do you, do you think it's, it somewhat cheapens that process to be able to just float out uh, a status or, you know, retweet a photo or whatever, uh, when in fact what we really need to be doing is is truly reflecting on what's happened. Yeah, I think reflect has become react. And mm. and usually it's reacting in an incredibly abbreviated fashion because it doesn't yeah. take anything. It's it's more of a reflection to write a 300-word blog post. Even if what you say is is fairly mundane, that yeah. that took something from you to invest thought, some heart in that, something along those lines. To yeah. change to put to put a, a red, white, and blue filter on your avatar or whatever it is, that doesn't take anything, and it doesn't yeah. mean anything. And then some people leave that, on, and you can tell it doesn't mean anything because people leave it on there for like nine months after the fact, even though the news cycle has since forgotten about that incident twenty five times over. And yeah, and we know this is the case because look at what trends on Twitter. Yeah. So, you know, Brussels bombing will trend. For maybe three to four days. And yeah. That, that's a long cycle if it makes it past three days. Exactly. And, exactly. and then and then we're on to something else. You know, it's going to be March Madness again come Thursday and that right. kind of thing. And all of a sudden – so it's just uh, – it. I do think it's completely killed our ability to reflect. But I think that suits people just fine because reflecting is hard and it's uncomfortable, especially when people are dying. Yeah, exactly, man. It is, it is hard and uncomfortable. And I, and I think one of the reasons we love things like March Madness in the NFL is that it does provide a, a bit of a release. I mean, it's a, a little bit of a safety valve in society to be able to talk about those things which are safe and escapist and, and all that. But uh, yeah, it's just funny, man, the cycle of this whole thing. I remember, dude, I remember 10 years ago kind of harumphing about well, something hasn't really happened unless you've blogged about it, you know. And now, like, we we long for the days of the three hundred word blog That's post. Right. That seems like that seems like long form thoughtfulness compared to you know dashing off a tweet or, or just retweeting something that you've seen. So yeah, and I, uh, I guess the thing that I would want to say to to our listeners so that they don't feel like we're just I mean I I probably sounded far more judgmental than you did when I see people do that stuff. I don't think idiot. I just no, think no, I, I just either. think that didn't add anything. You can right. you can do just as much good for people who are hurting on the other side of the world by silently praying or having yeah. a conversation with a friend about how to think about these things than you can yeah. by changing your Twitter avatar or hashtagging something. I mean, hashtag yeah. activism is not activism. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true, man. And and you know, having conversations with your wife about it, conversations with your with your kids about it. I mean, this is this is the reality of living in a broken, fallen world, you know, yeah. and and I think, you know, we're not going to we're going to we're not going to make any significant change by, you know, what we're doing on Twitter. You know, the significant change is going to come from, you know, what we teach our kids and how we how we teach them to live in society and talk through things and think through things and, and you know, how we model that for them at this point. So. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting, man. And th- this is actually a great segue into. Uh, our last topic, which is kind of in the social media age, uh, and again, this is a thing that we that we kind of hit on over and over. Uh, but what does it mean to be an expert in this age? Um, <laughs> it, and this is something that I talk about a lot, actually, with my mass media students. You know, just the idea of of expertise, and I think millennials are a little bit more uncomfortable with the idea of there even being an expert because they've they've 
kind of grown up in this populist environment where everybody's a musician, everybody's a publisher because the means of production are are there for people to right. to do all those things on their own. So um, whereas you and I grew up in a in an era where you know you had to be vetted by a, a magazine publisher, for example, before you got an article you know out there for public consumption, or you had to be vetted by a book publisher. And and there is something special about that, I think. But um, in this age, man, and in this generation, I do wonder. I wonder what the word expert even means. I I think it means um, I think it means whatever you want it to mean. I think it's mm-hmm. a I think it has become a self claimed title, and there's that's the downside of a good thing happening. You know, right. you, you mentioned that anybody can 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 publish, anybody can make music, anybody can put stuff out there. Uh, entrepreneurialism is on the rise. I think that's all sure. a good thing. You know, sure. creating opportunities. You don't get. You don't have to go through sort of the old boys club to arrive anymore. The yeah. downside is that there's not qualifications anymore. Yeah. You know, just because somebody has a master's degree doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't mean they're actually better at something than somebody who who's just learned it on their own. Um, whereas it used to be, if you saw a master's degree, if you saw doctor so and so, that really meant something. And now it's kind of like, well, they may or may not be an expert either. Um, yeah. So, so, dude, are there? Go ahead. Are there titles that mean anything anymore? I think in certain fields there are. I think uh oh. I mean I think I think doctors still mean something particularly in fields of uh like science and mathematics and like Sure. you know, those kinds of things. I think you know, working in the in the Southern Baptist world, doctor is a completely meaningless title. You know, <laughs> yeah. there, there are there are churches of 120 people in rural Tennessee who have, you know, if they're looking for a pastor, they're like doctorate preferred. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that's because you can get a doctor for like $45 and, and three hours online or something like that. I mean, that's an exaggeration, <laughs> but yeah, that it yeah, doesn't kind of qualify you to be a pastor. Thing, you know? What's that? Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of supply and demand. You yeah. know, I mean, with with more guys going to seminary, I mean, there's more doctors and it just kind of means less. Um, and, I, and, I mean, and, and it's a, and it's a, uh, it's a nebulous field, you know, getting right. a doctorate in theology might mean a ton, or it might mean that you went to a podunk school with an, you know, somebody who is overseeing your doctorate, who is, you know, like your daddy's best friend and that stuff happens a lot. And so somebody comes out sure. with a doctorate that's almost unearned. And then there's other people who get a, you know, doctorate in theology from, Cambridge or Oxford or or under under a, a supervisor who was rigorous and really pushed them and for them it it actually means something but you just don't know whereas like if, if you see a medical doctor you kind of yeah. know what that means now there are good doctors and bad doctors but they, they they all went through years and years of school and proved themselves along the way yeah and and if you're sick or like you know injured they they kind of hold your life in right. their hands, which yeah. to, to me is still really impressive. Now, dude, I'm fascinated by the whole honorary doctorate thing. <laughs> do you think? Do you think we could find any accredited institution of higher learning that would give this program and give us honorary doctorates for being um, mm. radio personalities in this uh, in this internet age? That's a good question, dude. Because I would. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. I would love an honorary doctorate. Man. Do you have I to just have find a master's degree to get an honorary doctorate? I don't think you do. I think you can skip right over that. Because I think you and Ronnie now, have I, master's degrees. I do not, and so I'm. I would, uh, I, I would be. It would. It would be. It would, I'd, I would be leapfrogging unless I can get an honorary master's as well. I'd take one of those. 
Dude, now I've never heard of anyone getting an honorary master's, but I like that concept. I mean, you know? baby steps. I'll, I'll take, yeah, I'll take, exactly. I'll take them in the sequence they come. I'm not picky. Maybe we could get you an honorary master's, and then uh, we could get honorary. T- I, I would even take, you know what? I would take an honorary bachelor's just in a different field. Oh yeah, than it's like a own. double major that you, know? you never had to study. It's a double major that you never had to do the work for. I would take that. I would absolutely take that, dude. You know what? A- an example of my arrogance in this area, vis-a-vis. <laughs> experts and and not caring about experts uh we had to go to this um fundraiser it was a like a private school fundraiser and i I realized dude there's just nobody that i want to sit in a room and listen to you know what i mean like there was a guy he came in he gave a talk um it's always a guy giving a talk i mean this is just kind of standard for these these fundraisers but um dude the list of people who i want to sit in a room and listen to is like three people long you know um Mike Ditka is on the list, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> so and, and this guy was, yeah, this guy was credentialed like to high heaven. You know, he had all these doctorates, and you know, he was supposed to give this really interesting talk about uh, I don't know C.S. Lewis or whatever. And and I don't know, man. Maybe it's just I don't know the circles we run in, and having grown up kind of uh, in a in a way sitting through talks like that. But, but I think experts especially in a place like that there's there is still a perceived expertise by a lot of people who who I mean we we run in privileged circles in a lot of ways meaning yeah. we cross paths with those who other people think are experts my for sure I, mean, I grew up in a home of one you have co-authored with many or we've been at conferences with them and you come sure. to find out that they're pretty normal people and that's, that's right. not a shot at them right. you're not saying well they're dumb no they're not dumb they're just they're people who study hard. They say good things, but like they're just pretty normal people. And yeah. so it kind of takes yeah. the shine off of expert. And then the other thing is when you're in the publishing industry or probably the education industry or in my case, the marketing industry, you run across a yeah. ton of people who are self-proclaimed experts and you realize oh, yeah. that they have huge followings and they're saying nothing important or nothing dude, novel right. yeah. at all. Marketing is full of people who just talk garbage and, it's <laughs> a, and, and, and people pay them money to say dumb stuff. It's and, so true, man. And there's and there's such a like a scheme or an intentionality behind and, and you and I have sat in on these meetings both as authors and as people in the book business. Like, you know, marketing people are forever going, you know, how could we get you on TV to talk about sports so that people will buy your sports book? Like you need to be you need to be perceived as an expert in that field. And it's like, well, like, don't I need to actually kind of be an expert? You know, like, shouldn't I have is, coached? I think, per, I think when it comes to experts, perception is reality, which is yeah. why in the marketing field, all it takes is somebody to have enough misplaced self-confidence to say, <laughs> right. I can sell my ideas. And then exactly. they go sell them. And you're like, that's not even a good idea. All it takes yeah. is enough people to buy it so that you, you get enough capital that you can sell your next idea. And I mean, it's the same as true with authors, but I, I waffle on this all the time because I'm arrogant enough to look at those people and think I know more than they do or I'm smarter yeah. than they are. Yeah. But then I'm also, on the other hand, uh, realistic enough, maybe it's humility enough to say, but it doesn't make sense to sell that. Like that's just something yeah. if I should just share with people if I know it you know, or, or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's sort of this – could I be a self-proclaimed expert or uh, you certainly could. I probably could and – I just I think that's kind of I think it's slimy though. I think it is slimy too, man. I totally agree. And yeah, I, I think of myself and I think if I were ever to be an expert, it would only be on a very tiny little section of things. You know what I mean? Um probably such a, a, a niche that nobody would even care. And 
Yeah, I, I like the idea. I think just fundamentally, I like the idea of there being fewer experts and the word expert meaning more. Yes. Rather than there being a whole, metaphorically speaking, room full of experts and the, the word not meaning a whole lot. Yeah, it, uh, it means a lot more to me when somebody reaches out to me through you know, Facebook or Twitter and whatever and says, hey, would you mind answering a couple questions about X? And they do it yeah. privately and I can respond to them privately instead of me feeling like I should put myself in the position where I, I field people's questions. Right, because where you're that, doing the slimy thing where you're like, hey, any and all pastor's kids, ask me because I am the, I'm the authority, I'm the right. voice on what it means to be a pastor's kid, you know? Yeah, yeah, you would just hate exactly. that person. Yeah, I, I, if I became that person, I would expect somebody to tell me to shut up. That would Absolutely. because I I should be annoying to people in that case. And you would be, and and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Ronnie and I would have the the strength of character to tell you to shut up. The I think cojones, if you will. Oh, I will, I will, folks. Cojones, that's a good one to end on. Uh, I am Ted Cluck. He is Barnabas Piper. We have wandered to and fro, and uh, until next time. Rachel the Held Evans. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.